millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hey Jim, welcome everybody to the latest edition of The Other Hand. As usual, a packed agenda. I think we are going to have a good discussion about follow-up and feedback and questions and comments that we have got on our Substack site concerning our last podcast a lot of which, by no means all, was about the Irish tax situation. And there were some questions. One or two people had a a slight dig at Jim about something that he said. I know that we want to talk about that. The two of us have got lots of things to say about what other people have said. What's going on in the world today? We've got lots of data to do with the mortgage market in Ireland. The Eurozone has some economic data, purchasing manager surveys, showing some interesting trends there. Germany's got some economic data that is consistent with them narrowly avoiding a recession in the first quarter, according to one or two experts. So that's another relief, but that's a bit like the UK. We've had some Irish unemployment data that I know Jim at least wants to have a chat about. One of the things that's happened in the last while, and thanks to one of our commenters for drawing our attention to this particular thing, is that we've often talked about Irish trade data in the context of it, the way Brexit has happened and the way in which the border between the UK and Ireland is working, both Ireland to Northern Ireland and Ireland to GB. And we have some proposals out from the UK for how they are going to do their inward import checks, which obviously has an impact on Ireland. And I just wanted to note that these proposals are out. 
There are some tentative dates in them, and people might be surprised to learn that the UK currently isn't doing very much by way of checks of imports from the EU, including Ireland, but they're coming. And I think at the very least, we need to note that. I wouldn't be at all surprised if the date that's contained in this draft document slips, because there are other things slipping with respect to various timetables to do with Brexit in the UK. There is a bill currently stuck in the House of Lords that does away with all EU legislation by the end of this year. And people, Brexiteers, are worried that that bill is getting quietly shelved in the wake of the Windsor framework and this new rapprochement with the EU. But Jim, the big subject that I think that we should probably start with, unless you wanted to do the economic data first, is tax. Which way do you want to play this? I'll start off on the tax issue, Chris. Okay. Um, let, let me put a question to you then, which comes from one of our commenters who goes by the name of Thermal Mammal, which is an interesting pseudonym. We uh, Several people use their real names. Some people believe that they can't use their real names, as is often the case on social media. Jim keeps telling us how strong the Irish tax take is and how well-oiled of a machine it is. He is often warned of the dangers of a new government coming in and implementing or tinkering with the tax policy which may undermine the basic current economic model. My question lies with universal social charge, the dreaded USC. Would he agree with a new government coming in and abolishing USC? That's a question for you, Jim. I just say a few things about the USC. We collected around $4.4 billion okay, last year in USC. It is a significant amount of tax revenue. And the one thing I liked about the introduction of the USC was that it did represent a significant broadening of the tax base. You know, I have always believed in a tax system where the tax burden is spread as widely as possible and that the marginal rates are as low as possible. Okay, and I think the USC did succeed in broadening the tax base. It brought a lot of people into the tax net that weren't in it before. I think that's desirable, not just because of the revenue it collects, but also because if people pay tax, I think there's a greater sense of responsibility and buy-in to society and to economic management. So I, I think paying tax does change one's attitude to economic policy and so on. So You know, I'd be probably being a minority of one here, but I kind of welcomed the USC. I don't regard it as a dreaded tax. I just think it's another tax that did actually achieve something, and that is the broadening of the tax base. But of course, in recent years, um, successive finance ministers have removed more and more people from the USC net. So I, I remember looking at all of the budgets between 2000 and 2006. And every time the Minister of Finance would stand up and proclaim, um, following the tax changes we've announced in today's budget, and just remember that period was a period of significant um, fiscal expansion on the back of buying tax revenues driven by the construction sector, which of course proved transitory. But there was a very expansionary fiscal policy. And successive ministers stood up and said, following the changes we've made today in the tax situation, a further 30, 40, 50, 60,000 people 
are being removed from the tax net altogether. So we narrowed the base significantly. And then when the property sector and construction collapsed, when tax revenues collapsed, you know, we had a serious problem. And one of the ways they addressed this problem, um, Brian Lenahan, the late Brian Lenahan, was to introduce the USC. And that brought more people back into the tax net again, as well as raising a significant amount of money. The last year for which we've dated, as I say, 4.4 billion collected. Uh, But again, over recent budgets, changes have, starting with Michael Noonan, in fact, changes have been introduced to USC, which has taken um, some workers out of that net. So we're narrowing the tax base again. So personally, I would not want to see the USC abolished. I think in theory, it is a good tax. Um, you could, of course, integrate it into the broader tax system. Um, but, you know, that's that's a different issue. One thing I have said about the Irish tax system for years, and I, I wrote a paper on it six or seven years ago at this stage for other purposes. I believe that one of the biggest problems in the Irish income tax system is that you end up paying the top rate of tax at way too low a level of income. I argued six or seven years ago that the entry point for the top rate of tax should be raised to 50,000. And I think it's it's about 40,000 now following the budget last year. So there's still a distance to go. But I think that is the, the way you put money back into workers' pockets. Uh, you take people out of the top rate of tax. Um, and I think that, to me, that seems like the fairest way of reforming the income tax system. Uh, but I, I, I wouldn't be in favor of abolishing the USC. Can I just throw out some statistics, if I may, Chris? About, Before you do that, Jim, yes. Mammal said that he felt that you were being a bit disingenuous at times. And I, frankly, I didn't understand that that comment that he made. And he goes on to say there's no point having a t- high tax intake at all, you know, at all time highs when the average taxpayer doesn't feel richer. Um, and this was very much to do with our discussion of incentive effects that will, you know, when you put taxes up, do people give up the ghost or do they work harder um, and all of that sort of thing? Did you did you understand what he was having a go at there? I actually didn't, um, to be honest. I don't know what he meant by um, mildly disingenuous. Um, but uh, I, I guess on the podcast when we when we speak about taxation, um, we don't elaborate a lot on it. And I tried to elaborate there in the last few minutes by saying that to me the best way of putting money back into people's pockets and the best way of benefiting ordinary taxpayers from the tax revenues that are being raised here um, is to lift the threshold at which you enter the top rate of tax. I think that is the fairest way and the most effective way of putting more money into people's pockets. Um, I wouldn't be cutting the rates. I would just be cutting the, uh, as I say, the entry point to the top rate of tax. I, I actually would also be in favor of a middle rate of tax. If you think about it, 20 and 40% significant um, gap there. So if you had, say, a 30% rate to capture some of the middle income, I think it would make it more um, progressive and so on. Um, But, you know, Chris, I I don't really understand what um, the mammal meant by the disingenuous piece. More generally, Jim, what I think you're getting at here is what you're trying to ask the question, I think, what, what is a fair tax system? And does the Irish tax system qualify as a fair tax system? Was that a reasonable way of framing the discussion? 
Um, it is. And, and, and of course, the problem with that comment, Chris, um, fair, um, it's a very subjective term. Exactly. Um, what's fair to one person is grossly unfair to somebody else. So it's, 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 it is a very subjective term. But can I just throw some statistics out? Because we, we keep hearing this stuff about what Ireland needs is a progressive income tax system coming from the left. Um, I remember specifically during the whole water charge debacle, and I was 100% in favour of water charges because I believe from the perspective of raising revenue to invest in the water infrastructure and also to drive conservation, um, charging people for their water consumption above a certain level, to me, makes sense. But anyway, that the, the left reacted really aggressively to that. And for political reasons, it never saw the light of day. But one of the arguments that was put forward when you asked these people is, well, how are we going to raise the money to invest in the water infrastructure? We need to introduce a progressive income tax system. And Ireland has... Um, and this is the OECD's analysis rather than mine, Ireland has one of the most progressive income tax systems in the world. Okay, and stats prove this. You know, 80% of income tax is paid by the top 25% of earners. So 80% paid by 25% of earners, and the top 1% of earners pay over 20% of total income tax collected and one in four people, that's 25%, pay little or no income tax and 500,000 workers out of a workforce of over two and a half million pay 75% of the income tax that's collected. So it's it's a very, very um, progressive income tax system. And if you want to break it down then into the sectors, um, and I'm not criticizing this, okay? I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I am stating the fact that these statistics prove just how progressive the income tax system is here. The more you earn, the more tax you pay. People working in the finance industry pay 13% of total income tax. People in manufacturing and ICT, that's the technology sector, pay 11% each of the total income tax take. And then you look at the hospitality sector, um, workers in that sector, and indeed in arts and entertainment is the same. They contribute 1% of total income, income tax. And that's because in hospitality and arts and entertainment, you know, pay levels are significantly lower than in ICT or in the finance sector. So uh, that to me just demonstrates just how progressive the income tax system is here. And I throw these statistics out because I'm sick and tired of people complaining about the lack of progressivity in the Irish income tax system. There is a significant level of income inequality pre-tax in this country. But once you apply the tax system and the social welfare system to those earnings, um, there is a significant redistribution. And as I say, a very, very progressive tax system. That to me is the fact of the matter. So the uh, question I think, is, yeah. that I posed earlier on, do you think, does Jim Power think the Irish tax system is fair? Uh, no, I, I mean, I don't think it's particularly fair um, in, in some senses. Personally, I feel I pay way too much tax uh, for the amount of effort I put in. Um, as I say, to me, a fair tax system would be where um, the 
rates are as low as possible and the base is as wide as possible. And on top of that, then you, the, the way you take more money from the really high earners would be through, you know, adjusting the various tax credits and allowances that are applied. I have a nuanced answer to that, Chris, to be honest. Do you think it's fair? I've got a long-winded answer to that question. Uh, it starts with the comment that you made earlier on, that what we all mean by fair is, is very subjective. I think that uh, if you start to equate fairness with progressivity, if you think that a progressive, the more progressive your tax system is, the fairer it is, and that's one definition that I would lean towards, then I would say the Irish tax system is extremely fair. Another way of thinking about it is more from a, I don't know, from a socio-political point of view rather than a pure economic one. Because as you know, Jim, the theory of taxation, I think, says that the most efficient form of taxation is actually lump sum taxation. It's not, and it's not remotely like anything that we have. Let's not go there for now. But the it, it's what sort of society do you end up with, given the tax system that helps to create it? And I think one of the things that I would say about these highly progressive tax systems like Ireland is that they tend to occur in very cohesive societies that are more or less at peace with itself. One of the things that you don't have in Ireland that we have here in the UK and in the United States and in lots of other countries, of course, are these culture wars, populism, you've got it a bit. Um, there are people starting to, to try and whip it up in Ireland. Of course there are. But by and large, you know, you're not living in a society that is at war with itself, culturally, politically and socially. And there are lots of reasons for that. But I think one of them is the equalization, if you like, that the tax system gives Irish society. You talked about redistribution, that no country on earth redistrib redistributes income via the tax and welfare system like Ireland. It is absolutely at the leading edge of OECD countries that does this. And I think that that helps create the culture, the society that you do live in. Lots of other factors as well. It's not just about money. It's not just about tax and welfare. And I think you need to think if you had a, a different, if you had less progressive system, would you have a different type of society? And I think you would. And I think that the unfairer your tax system, the more likely it is that people who do earn lots of money are going to be living behind 12 foot walls with barbed wire on the top. I think it is a price that people pay for living in a pe relatively peaceful, cohesive society. That isn't the only reason why we should pay tax. There are, there, there are lots of other reasons, but it, it gets very subjective very, very quickly. So I, I think that it is reasonably fair, given the way in which I observe other societies with very diff markedly different tax systems. I think it certainly it produces what I consider to be a very nice country, one that it's, it's very pleasant to live in relative to an awful lot of other countries. Um, you might recall that in a different context, I've written about this recently, we've spoken about it on the pod, the United Nations Human Development Index reckons that Ireland is the eighth best country in the world to live in right now. And I do think your tax and welfare system is a part of that. It is one of the nicest places on earth to live, Ireland, and your, your tax system is, is, as I say, part of that. So that's my long-winded answer to your question. The short-winded answer is yes, I do think it is a reasonably fair system. Your point about the higher rate of tax and the, and the, the level that it kicks in is, is very well made. And I, I do think that you are close to there for it being quite a significant disincentive to, to work, to effort, to, to people entering the workforce. And I, I don't want to get into that same discussion that we had before 
about the Laffer curve and self-financing tax cuts and all the rest of it. But that top rate of tax and where it kicks in, I think, is perhaps the biggest, one of the biggest anomalies in your system. So on that one, I would definitely agree with you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, but Chris, um, you know, you clearly don't live here. So I, I just sense... I for a long time, Jim. <laughs> you did. I but I many, many thousands of euros in Irish tax <laughs> over many years. I, I actually think, Chris, over the last couple of years, the cohesion is breaking down here. Um, you know, I, I look at the message that's been thrown out by people like Sinn Féin, people before profit, um, and so on. And they... They, they just keep throwing out the mantra that, you know, people need to pay more tax. The higher earners need to pay more tax. And if you look at Sinn Féin's economic policy platform, um, and it's, it's still a bit vague, but looking at the Sinn Féin submission to the Commission on Taxation and Social Welfare Reform last year, uh, you know, they're talking about a significant increase in the tax rate for people earning over 100,000 a year. They're talking about reducing the pensions the tax exempt pension pot from 2 million to 1.6 million. So they're talking about, and for, you know, that they are for people earning over, I think, 125,000, a further significant increase. So that there is this narrative out there that despite the progressivity of the tax system, they are not prepared to admit it. Um, and all they want is just to increase the tax burden further and further. And I think, um, and I guess, that maybe is the comment that the mammal was getting back to me about. I just think the further you take this, um, the more dangerous it is going to become. And, and, and I just think you reach a point where uh, the disincentive effect of that will just force higher earners out of our economy. And we will end up with a, a workforce and a society dominated by low and middle income workers. Um, I don't think that's a recipe for prosperity either. I think you need a mixture of high earners and the rest in any workforce, in any society. And indeed, um, you look at the ICT sector, uh, that sector is under significant pressure globally. We've seen 2,600 jobs shed there, um, but they are high earners, but they also pay a significant amount of tax here. And there has to be a limit to how much more tax people like that are prepared to pay. So that 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 would be my point. Can I also 
um, just mention on the corporation tax side, um, you know, we throw out every month the latest take on the corporation tax side. Uh, very strong returns in the month of January, up over a billion of March, excuse me, up over a billion on March of last year. But um, just to put corporation tax in context, it is now the second largest tax heading in the Irish and the Irish tax code next to income tax. And last year, for the first time ever, it overtook VAT. So corporation tax has become very, very important. One in four euro collected in taxes here in total taxes comes from the corporate sector. 10 companies pay close to 53% of total corporation tax paid and a small number of highly profitable companies pay one eighth of the total tax collected, um, not just corporation tax, total tax collected. And the top 100 companies here pay 80% of corporation tax. So um, it's clear as well, as, okay, we, we've seen the stats showing us the progressive nature of the income tax system, but the stats also show us the very concentrated nature of the corporation tax system. And of course, the challenge there, and it's one the Department of Finance is extremely concerned about, is uh, should any of those companies get into difficulty, we could have a problem. And um, I mentioned in a podcast last week that Michael McGrath was speaking at an event last Thursday night where he said that the Department of Finance reckons up to 10 billion of the corporation tax could be transient or vulnerable in nature. So um, I, I think it is worth bearing that in mind, to be honest. Isn't there a simple solution to this, Jim? That you simply, if you're the Department of Finance, simply say that uh, all transient revenues, all these windfall revenues, uh, to the extent that we can measure that, uh, we stick in the Sovereign Wealth Fund which to a certain extent is what they're doing. They haven't formalized it to the point that they say, say, for example, that the corporation tax take is expected to be 20 billion this year. I'm just picking round numbers. I know that it, it won't be that. And that we think, as you say, 10 billion is transient and that therefore 10 billion is sustainable and that anything above the sustainable level that we, the Department of Finance, thinks is, is, is there, we're going to stick into the sovereign wealth fund. We're not going to spend it. So that forever, from here on out, we will publish two num two, well one number every budget and say this is what we consider to be the sustainable level of tax revenues. Our budget is based on that. Anything above that won't go into uh, spending, and we'll go straight into the sovereign wealth fund. End of. Forget about it. Move on. Is that not is that too simple? Do you think? Uh, no, uh, it's it's not too simple. Um, in twenty ten. Um, the top 10 companies paid 32% of corporation tax. That's now jumped to 53%. So it just shows the corporation tax thing is becoming more concentrated. And I think by definition, that means it's becoming more vulnerable and potentially transient. So if you are collecting these windfall taxes, if you want to call it that, um, it makes total sense to actually put that money away for when we need it. Um, an alternative suggestion would be that the state steps in and, you know, develops or funds the development of apartment blocks build to sell rather than the current model of build to rent. Um, and I, I was thinking earlier today about the National Asset Management Agency, NAMA, um, the thousands of apartments it sold very cheaply 
over the last number of years as part of the whole restoration of order public finances. Um, I was and I still am a huge critic of the approach adopted by NAMA. Um, I don't think it worked. Um, I don't think it made sense. But that's something that you actually cannot say in public in this country. You'll get absolutely pilloried. Didn't you just did. I just did. NAMA is up there as another one of these national icons. But I, I disagree with that narrative. But if the state had stepped in and bought those apartments, um, you know, our housing situation would be in a very different place today. And you wouldn't have people complaining about vulture funds and so on. Something I never do, actually, because in the absence of that happening, um, we needed external capital to fund the development of housing here. And indeed, going forward, we will need external capital. So this bullshit we hear about the vulture funds um, being something incredibly evil, I don't buy that narrative. I think without them, we would not have been able to fund the development of housing that, and apartments that we've seen over the last number of years. Uh, but in you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen government bond yields in this country zero or in negative territory. Um, you know, should the state not have stepped in and filled its boots with cheap money and used that to address in an aggressive way the housing situation? There is the obvious constraint about the capacity to deliver. But I, I think um, government in relation to housing has shown just an amazing lack of innovation, bravery over the last number of years. And now private landlords are being demonized with this whole rubbishy argument going on about the eviction ban and so on. The eviction ban should never actually have been in introduced in the first place. It was just a, a form of market interference that actually ultimately has made the situation worse. So we should, yes, should have borrowed lots more money when interest rates were negative, when the government was being paid to borrow. That's coulda, woulda, shoulda type reasoning, which is important to say. And I think future economic historians will look back on that period and wonder why in the name of God, we didn't embark on the most amazing social infrastructure spending, uh, rebuilding so many different aspects of our economy when we were being paid to do so. But now, what do we do now? And I think what you're saying, Jim, is that um, putting it together with what I said about what you do with, with windfall uh, or temporary or unsustainable corporation tax revenues is that you decide which bit of the, your tax take is unsustainable, put that bit into the National Savings Fund, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, label it how you will. And I think a good rule of thumb, actually, is just to split the difference half and half. Every, mm. every 50 cents you get in every euro of corporation tax revenues stick into this sovereign wealth fund don't you don't need to do fancy econometric modeling to decide with spurious precision what is sustainable what is not sustainable just have that rule of thumb and i think without wishing to put words in your mouth but what i would sense from what you're saying is okay now we've got i think we've got six billion in it now haven't we yeah and we're about you know presumably going to be sticking even more in as these corporation tax revenues keep coming in above projections why not take that six billion and just build six billion worth of houses and flats? Is that what you're saying? It's not that simple in the sense that why not? A why not? Why there can't, there... why, why can't you yeah. just pay? Okay, I know you. Okay, who's going to build them, Chris? Who's going to build them? Import some workers, uh, train some workers, spend the six billion on training and apprenticeships. Just accept the cost inflation that will come from that massive increase in demand. Yeah. And say, here's six billion. 
whatever it whatever it takes, whatever we can do, if it's a million, if it's half a million, if it's a hundred, whatever number of houses and flats we can do with six billion, that's what we're going to do. Let's just get on with it. Yeah, I think it's an interesting discussion, Chris, because um, COVID definitely changed a lot of minds about the role of government in an economy and in a society. Um, when, after March 20, we were subjected to significant restrictions, uh, the state stepped in very aggressively to support households, to support businesses. Um, I certainly was in favour of that. Um, in the past, I would never have been as predisposed towards such a level of government intervention in the economy. But COVID showed it was necessary at the time. And I think you can turn around now and say that given the significance of housing, given how crucial it is socially, economically and politically, um, massive government intervention of the correct variety is now required. Um, So I know you saw on Twitter um, an uh, an exchange I had or a view I expressed on social media, I won't mention any names, but a prominent uh, critic of the government of, of uh, the planning process um, was celebrating the fact yep. that Onboard Planola had yet again turned down a large uh, development of apartments in Dublin city centre, actually. And uh, I opined the comment, yay, let's celebrate because we have yet again decided not to build something. We've got to do something about NIMBYism. And that's just one example out of uh, hundreds we could cite because I've no idea about the merits or demerits of that particular case. But I did see lots of people um, put up montages uh, of what it would actually look like. And it didn't seem it didn't certainly offend me in terms of its visual impact and and all the rest of it. But maybe there were good reasons for turning it down. But the trend is clearly there, isn't it, Jim? That we object to everything, we turn down far more than we should, and the people celebrate, like these people were doing the other day on social media, the fact that, yet again, we have a major development turned down by onboard Planola. NIMBYism uh, has got to stop. I just want to draw attention to a great friend of the podcast, um, Shane O'Mara. He writes a great substack called Brain Pizza, and he linked to a piece that I wrote on Substack about NIMBYism recently. And I think he had some great proposals in his piece for getting around this NIMBY thing. It was a very intelligent, uh, from left field, some very interesting thoughts and proposals about how we actually do this. But one of the interesting things that he points that he made is that all of these buildings that these you know architectural heritage types want to protect visual amenity and overlooking and light and all these reasons for objecting, they would never, none of them would have been built if the planning laws that we have now were in existence when these properties were first built because the planning system didn't exist back then. So it's one of the many ironies of the way in which we go about building or not building stuff. We've got to build, Jim. We have to build. And if we don't, um, we could certainly spend $6 billion on nothing at all. But we, we, we have to spend it on something, yeah. I think. I totally agree. Uh, and I, I find it utterly infuriating, this sense of triumphalism when a planning application is turned down. Um, it, it, it's unbelievable. It's, it's, but anyway, Chris, we'll leave it there. I just, just in case the listeners find this um, a little bit downbeat and so on, I'll just leave with one um, piece of data out of Ireland, which is the un- latest unemployment data to March the unemployment rate remaining close to historic low of 4.3%. And in the last 12 months, the number of people unemployed is down by 14,400. 
So um, still a great labour market out there. Good. Great to end on an upbeat note. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 